0: This podcast is presented by Solving Kids Cancer, dedicated to improving survival through novel clinical studies. To learn more about funding opportunities, visit our website at solvingkidscancer.org and click Apply for Grant.
1: This week in Pediatric Oncology, the podcast about new advances for childhood cancer Hi everybody, welcome to episode number 75, recorded on January 18th, 2019. It's been a while since we've had an episode, but we're back at it, happy to tell you. So I'm your host, Tim Kripe, from Nationwide Children's Hospital in Columbus, Ohio, affiliated with The Ohio State University. I'm here with my co-host, Neelay Shaw. Welcome, Neelay. Happy to be here. Yes, it's good to be back. Uh, And today we have a special guest, Rob Wexlerayah from the Sanford Burnham Institute in San Diego, sunny San Diego, California. Uh, welcome, Rob. Thank you. Thanks for coming here. here. From San Diego to Columbus, Ohio, in the middle of winter <laughs> on a snowy day. So Rob was here giving a seminar today, which he just gave, and he got the award from our department chairman for the best title of the year called America's Top Mouse Models. <laughs> and then something about modeling brain tumors. So we're going to talk today about, about medulloblastoma. Uh, and uh, some of the work he's done preclinically preclinically and, and biologically. Uh, but first, we wanted to start off as usual to find out a little bit about your background. It was a bit, a bit diverse, a little bit non-traditional. Can you tell us some of the highlights that got you where you are today?
0: Sure. So, uh, well, first of all, I grew up in Canada, and so the weather here is familiar. I Hopefully Not as bad. Well, some days, right? <laughs> but I guess I'd say I would say... Got into studying pediatric brain tumors sort of accidentally. I did my PhD in immunology, and I did a postdoc in, I guess you'd call molecular oncology, studying oncogenes. And one of the things I found in that lab, um, this was a lab run by George Prendergast at the Wistar Institute, was um, that the particular gene I was studying was as important in normal development as it was in cancer. Um, this is a gene that was called BIN1, and I ended up studying it in the context of muscle development, even though it had been previously identified as a mic binding protein and had a putative role in cancer. Um, that notion that cancer and normal development were somehow related intrigued me and stuck with me, and when I went on to do my second postdoc at Stanford, I did it with Matthew Scott, who was a developmental biologist, a Drosophila developmental biologist, who happened to discover just before I got there that one of the genes that he had been studying that regulates development in flies was an important tumor suppressor, and when you mutated it in mice, it gave rise to a model of medulloblastoma, and this was the first genetically engineered mouse model of medulloblastoma, and I came to his lab and began to study how normal developmental perturbations could result in this kind of
1: cancer. So how, long, how many years ago was that? How long have you been working on
0: Um For about 18 or 19 years. Um, long time.
1: So you know everything there is to know about it. Absolutely, this. and we've cured it so many times. <laughs> Unfortunately. Yes. Uh, and so then, what did you do after that?
0: So uh, after I finished my postdoc at Stanford, I moved to a faculty position at Duke. And I was at Duke um, for almost 10 years. And then moved from there to San Diego where I am now and my lab is really focused on understanding the relationship between normal development and tumor formation and in the process developing animal models of the disease of medulloblastoma that we can use to understand the biology of the disease to identify targets and then to test those Targets to see whether when you inhibit them you inhibit tumor growth and the goal is to then take the information from those models and move it forward into clinical studies. If the agents show benefit in our mice, we hope they'll show benefit in patients.
1: So can you walk us through a little bit how it, how much work it takes to make a model of a tumor in a mouse? Yeah.
0: Um, so I should say there are several different kinds of models, and they are each extremely flawed, but uh, better than the absence of any models at all. Um, I. I used to like to uh, quote Winston Churchill saying something like, um, democracy is the worst system in the world and the best one we have, or something like that. Most models are like that. We develop models, generally speaking, of two types. Um, We make genetically engineered models where we perturb a gene that we think might be important in tumor growth in the mouse or in cells from the mouse, and we see if that gives rise to a tumor. And then we make patient-derived xenograft models where we get tissue from the operating room. We bring it back to the lab, and we inject it into the brain of a mouse, and we propagate that patient's tumor in an animal's brain. And they each have, as I said, significant disadvantages and also some significant advantages. The genetically engineered mouse models are mouse tumors growing in a mouse. So at least they are where they belong. But they usually are the result of some incredibly artificial system where you've perturbed one or two genes. And you're hoping that it will mimic the much more complex cancer that happens in a patient. On the other hand, the patient-derived xenografts are actual patient's tumors, so they have all of that complexity. But now you're sticking them into the brain of another species. And in fact, it's another species that by design has to have no immune system because if you put a human tumor into a mouse with an immune system, it gets rejected. And so each of those models has problems, but if you learn something from one of those models and it validates in the other model or in several of those models, that gives me at least more confidence that this is something real that might be applicable to patients. And so we like to juggle these these two approaches. And just for
1: the animal rights folks, um, you know, you're doing this so that you can develop new treatments. So in many cases, you're trying to cure the mice, or you did show a lot of mice that actually have been cured of their tumors. So that's a plus, a good thing. Um, also, you're uh, trying to understand things obviously better so that we can help help treat patients. But uh, what about these models? Uh, makes them important to have instead of testing things in a dish or, or you know outside of models. What? Why are they yeah, important?
0: so important? Yeah. So. Um, unfortunately, what we and others have found is that when you take cells and you put them in a dish, this is a plastic dish in which you're, you've put artificial media supplemented with calf serum or something like it, um, the cells that end up growing out are very different from the tumor that they were derived from. Um, they're different because, first of all, when you do this, 99.9% of the cells from the patient's tumor die. And then the cells that grow out are growing out in an abnormal microenvironment without all the other cell types they normally see with the wrong kinds of growth factors and so on. And so although there's there's a lot of study of cell lines derived from human cancer, and there is important information that comes from those, when it comes to validating those studies, um, often the results don't line up. And so we feel that it's really important to look at tumor growth in vivo, in an organism, because that's really—if anything is going to predict efficacy in a patient, it's going to be efficacy in another species.
1: And so, not only are they not authentic, but they're not in the microenvironment, immune cells, and yeah. vascular cells, and everything else that's that's in the in the mouse. So, exactly. that, that
2: emphasizes importance. Obviously, you know all the things that you emphasize are critical in demonstrating that uh, the the findings that we're seeing. Uh, outside of the living organism can be validated or in the mouse. And you've had on, uh, on some of the limitations uh, already, you know, it's it's funny because uh, For over a century at this point mice have been used to uh, uh, Study human development much mm-hmm. as you were talking about and in many ways uh, um, developmental biologists have, have viewed mice as our as our uh, cousins to some degree, yeah. but they're not humans. Um, and there are some, some important differences there. You know, For uh, my work um, and some of the research that we do here, epigenetics is, is an important thing, uh, particularly in childhood cancer. You better define what epigenetics yeah. is. Yeah. <laughs> and epigenetics is basically kind of the, the master regulation of which genes get turned on and turned off in different parts of our body. Uh, and and so some of that may not be the same, in particular because the genes aren't in the same order mm-hmm. in uh, in the mice as they are in humans. What other limitations uh, um, have you found in using mouse models, and, and what are ways that you uh, you sidestep that?
0: Mm-hmm. I think you make a really good point. I think there are definitely studies showing that the epigenome of mouse tumors can be different from the epigenome of human tumors, and. I think some of that is, is interspecies differences. Some of it is also differences in the kinds of systems in which we're comparing those things. I think that the, the best solution I can come up with is actually just complementarity. That is, do the studies in the mouse models, do the studies in the human models. There are now a number of groups that are developing uh, IPS, in, induced pluripotent stem cell-based models, that are similar to the ones we've developed for mice, where you take a stem cell or a progenitor and you put in the oncogenes that make it look like a tumor. But instead of doing that into mouse cells, you do that into human cells, um, human-induced pluripotent stem cells. And then that makes a model of the same kind of tumor that we made in mice, but using human cells. And one of the advantages, as you mentioned, is that when there are genomic aberrations, that is, big chunks of DNA that are lost or gained or rearranged in a human tumor, in if you start with a human cell, you can make those same changes. Not trivial, but you can make those same changes. If you wanted to delete a portion of chromosome 11 that's missing in a human tumor, you'd have to delete a little bit of chromosome yep. 2 and a little bit of chromosome 8, and it's just not doable. Yep. So I think from a genomic standpoint... Um, using human cells is valuable. On the other hand, in that case, you're starting with induced pluripotent stem cells. That is, you're starting with, say, a fibroblast that you then converted to a neural progenitor and went through all kinds of artificial manipulations. So it has its flaws too. And again, what I would argue is, show me the drug, the therapy, the oncogenic driver, and show me that it works in each of those systems. And that's a really strong result. If it only works in one of those systems, it still may be important. But then you have to ask why. What's the difference? I think there are also some very significant differences in the immune systems of mice and people. And and in the cytokines that these cells respond to. So I, I think that we have to be cautious about the conclusions we draw when we're studying a mouse that has been inbred and has very homogeneous genetic elements, compared to a patient who's outbred and has a very heterogeneous genome. But that said, you know, if you can take a mouse model and show something about the immune system that you can't show in a human model because it can only grow in the absence of an immune system, um, that's at least some preclinical data that you can take forward. Because the alternative, and some people think this is a good alternative, but the alternative is, let's just skip all the animal studies and go straight to patients. And the problem with that, even though, yes, that will, that will give you the answer, patients are not very good experimental subjects. <laughs> They're not homogeneous. They um, we usually only treat them after they've failed conventional therapy, so their tumors are much more complicated. And it's not, we don't have, fortunately, in pediatrics, we don't have enough patients to test all the things that we'd like to test in clinical trials so m- to my mind we better find some mechanism for prioritizing and I think preclinical studies really stringent preclinical studies ought to be one way that we prioritize things for moving
1: forward into the clinic so one solution to some of the challenges you mentioned is the humanized mouse yes that we've been thinking about doing that you've been toying with can you tell us for our audience I guess sure <laughs> it sounds a little scary a humanized it's a, mouse. It, it's a little like cheetos on them. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yes. So the notion is that um, it, there, for a long time actually a lot of cancer studies were done only in culture dishes because if you had a human cancer cell line and you stuck it into a mouse, it wouldn't grow. Over time people have developed mice with more and more compromised immune systems so that they are not able to reject the human tumor. And highly immunocompromised mice now become suitable hosts for putting human tumor cells into them. And so that's great. You can study them, but you then can't study the immune system. So the question is, can you reconstitute in that immunocompromised mouse enough of an immune system that you can begin to study it? And so really it involves, I think, three elements. If you have tumor cells that are of human origin, You can put them into the immunodeficient mouse, but that mouse has no T-cells or B-cells or natural killer cells. You can reconstitute that mouse with human hematopoietic stem cells, blood stem cells. And if you put in blood stem cells, they will give rise to B-cells, T-cells, natural killer cells, macrophages. And so now that mouse has an immune system. But if that immune system is completely different from the immune system from which the the patient's tumor came, or rather the genetics of that system are different, then what you're going to get is rejection of that tumor the way if I took a skin graft from one of you and put it on me, I would reject it. And so now the key is can we match the immune system that we're putting into this mouse to the genetics of the tumor? Can we essentially have sibling or at least cousin immune system and tumor? so that they can interact in some way that might resemble what happens in a patient. And it's tough. Um, the mouse has its own immune system. If you really want to study how the human immune system interacts with a human tumor, you need to get rid of the mouse immune system and put in the human immune system. It's all very artificial, I think. Um, it's, it's not a perfect model. But it is a system in which you can ask questions about immune responses to human tumors before going into a patient and so for that reason we're going through all the acrobatics to try to develop this kind of model and others have been doing this and have had some success um, it just takes a while.
1: One well, I think um, for, as the technologies get better and, and our ability to um, analyze the immune system or cultivate it in a mouse with various manipulations people might see these more and more and so it may even be important for our listeners who might be Families or patients that might get consented at some time in the future, you know, for a bone marrow or a peripheral blood stem cell collection and a tumor biopsy to then have the same tumor and their immune system in a mouse. uh, This could be an advance.
2: This kind of segues into uh, what I thought was really just an astounding part of of your talk. Um, You know, we're talking about how do we study the tumors in these different models and. And uh, you have uh, two of these models, and, and I'll let you kind of explain it a little bit more. But basically, you made a very interesting discovery on what allowed one tumor to grow in the presence of an immune system and didn't let the other one grow. And, and I think it's very important, particularly for our patients in pediatric oncology, because of the, the lack of success up to this point and future directions for immune oncology. So if you, do you have like a, little, a quick way to explain yeah. that story?
0: So for the immune system to recognize anything, for the T-cells of the immune system, which are really the, the sort of army, the, the killer cells, for them to recognize something and attack it and destroy it, um, the target has to have on its surface a molecule called MHC. And MHC is what the T-cells recognize and then recognize as foreign and kill the target. So for a tumor cell, if it has MHC, there's a chance that a T-cell could kill it. And if that's the case, then if you give some of the current immunotherapies that activate T-cells, they may work better. But if the cell that in question, the tumor cell in this case, has no MHC on its surface, then it's essentially invisible to the T-cells. And what we found is that a subset of um, medulloblastomas and perhaps some other tumors, lack this molecule MHC on their surface and therefore cannot be seen by the immune system. And what that means is that if those patients went into an immunotherapy trial, they might not be successful, not because the therapy was not turning the T-cells on, but because the T-cells have nothing to see.
2: It's basically the tumors can hide yeah. that their cancer, and, and this is where it goes into what you discovered of how they do that.
0: Yeah, so... Um, and so this phenomenon is called immune evasion, and the notion is that tumors know no, anthropomorphizing here. Tumors know that if yeah, that they smart. yes, they are very smart, much smarter than we are. That if they are vulnerable to the immune system, that's that's going to kill them. And so not anthropomorphizing. In fact, tumors have um, evolved strategies for um, masking themselves from the immune system, and. One of them is actually to, to create, to generate a molecule on their surface that shuts off the T-cells. And this is the target of the most commonly used immunotherapy now, the immune checkpoint inhibitor. If you block that interaction, if you prevent the tumor from shutting off the T-cells, now the T-cells are active. Um, what we found is that um that have mutations in a tumor suppressor gene called P53, This is one of the most commonly mutated genes in in all of cancer. When this gene is mutated, the cell is not able to make MHC and put it on its surface. And it's those p53 mutant tumors that seem to be invisible to the immune system. So the striking thing we found is that there is a strategy for overcoming this. We can circumvent the invisibility of the tumor by exposing cells to a molecule called tumor necrosis factor, or TNF. And TNF is something that's made normally in the body, but it's usually made in settings of inflammation. Um, and in some tumors, there is inflammation, but in medulloblastomas, our data suggests that there's not, and there's very little TNF. If we give the cells or give the, the mouse TNF, we can... Uh, cause them to re-express MHC on their surface. And when they do that, now the T-cells that are there can attack them. And if you simultaneously turn activate the T-cells by giving one of these checkpoint inhibitors, now you get synergy. You get a tumor that's more vulnerable with an army that's more effective. And so our hope is that when we approach immunotherapy, we try to approach it actually in a more sophisticated way than chemotherapy has historically been approached. For a tumor to be killed by the immune system, you need at least four things. The tumor has to look foreign. It has to have something in it that could be recognized by the immune system. Then it has to have these MHC molecules that allow the immune system to see that foreign thing. There have to be T cells in the neighborhood because if there are no T cells, there are other arms of the immune system, but from the point of view of the T cell therapies, there have to be T cells there. And those T-cells have to be active. So if any one of those things is is not true, immunotherapy will not work. And normal immune recognition of the tumor will not work. So I'm hoping that over the next few years, we can build combination approaches that are tailored to patients, where we recognize what are the rate-limiting steps for immunotherapy in this patient, and what do we need to do? What should we pull pull out of the toolbox to help this patient's tumor be killed by the patient's immune system.
1: We should qualify that, that uh, some immunotherapies won't work. Things like CAR-Ts can be
2: engineered to recognize tumors, yeah. or BITES to recognize tumors without the MHC. But they so, still yeah. face the limitation of if the tumor is turning off the immune system otherwise. Sure, it and is. still have some limitations. Yeah, yeah, and so I
0: think it's going to be at least tumor type by tumor type, if not patient by patient. I think the, the challenge, one of the things that's been recognized is that melanoma, is highly sensitive to these checkpoint inhibitors, whereas a lot of other tumors are not, and people talk about immunologically hot and cold tumors. But the kind of work that you do where you take oncolytic viruses and put them into tumor cells, to me is a fantastic approach to being able to give a tumor that might not have a lot of foreign antigens some really good foreign antigens, and by the way, and you know this, probably also kick up the inflammatory response that makes TNF locally, and so, it's not that I, I don't think this is an insoluble problem. I think that there are strategies we can take as long as we know what we need to be able to take hot tumors and make them killed, and to take cold tumors and make them hot.
2: Right. Yeah. So I, I just I really like that story because it, it did two things. One, it really demonstrated the the power of these mouse models because really, in the absence of the mouse models, this isn't something you would have been able to identify in any way. Yeah. And two. You know, with the advent of, of these immunotherapies, you know, we think uh, like like most of our treatments. You know, we understand what the the therapy is doing, uh, and and for the most part, we're probably right. But there are a lot of these subtleties, mm-hmm. and uh, and this is really the first time that that instead of just looking at okay, the T cells aren't being activated. Of more of like okay, what about the tumor cells themselves are are allowing. Or allowing the, the tumor to, to hide in that way, which is really fantastic. So and can you reverse yeah. it? And right can exactly. you reverse it, yeah. In this <laughs> case it seems to be the case. So
1: that yeah, it's great. What do you think are some of the challenges or things that we need to do moving forward to uh, speed up the discovery process and the translational process? you we didn't we sort of touched on it that you're using these models to screen drugs and trying to devise some clinical trials and yeah. your work with uh in collaboration with people at Rady Children's, but what do we need to do th- to make it all better?
2: I don't
0: think it's one thing, sadly. I do think that there, there needs to be a more directed effort to take advantage of what we learn in the lab. The goal of what we learn in the lab shouldn't be just to publish paper and then walk away. I think the goal needs to be, at the, at the inception of the project, are we doing something that could potentially make a difference? And I have to say, the I mean, you know, I went into science because I thought it was cool, and I thought it was fun to solve puzzles, and it, and it is. But um, I was really transformed by my interactions with patients. And I'm not a clinician, but I've had the opportunity to meet kids with medial blastoma and their families, and unfortunately, a number of them are no longer with us. But it it changes the way you look at what you do in a couple of ways it 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 makes you if you're going to look the parent of a kid who died of this disease in the face and say yeah you know we published another paper today you know they don't care and and they shouldn't care you have to be able to look them look them in the eye and say we are doing something that maybe not today but maybe tomorrow will make a difference maybe not for your kid but for somebody else's kid and that focuses what you do And then it also, I think, makes you feel like, uh, you know, the grant rejections and the paper rejections, they suck. But the reality is, this is a process, and there's a reason that we're doing it. And I think, so taking the models that we develop and using them to ask questions about therapeutic targets, using them to test drugs, and being in a constant conversation with our clinical colleagues to say, Look, here's what I found. What do you think? Should we do a trial of this? Is this nonsense? Or am I trying to cure a disease that doesn't actually happen in patients? Those are really critical questions, and I think we need to set up frameworks where, um, where scientists are forced to do that and where clinicians are forced to come to terms with the complexity of the system and to really try to grapple with how do we bring these therapies forward into the clinic?
1: Yeah, one of the things we've been doing here is to invite the PhD scientists to come to the tumor board and other clinical conferences so yeah. that instead of their idea of a tumor that's just a bump on a mouse, yeah. they can see the images of the complexities of yeah. metastatic disease and different organs and so forth and hear about the patients. Yeah, so, it's
2: absolutely
0: critical and we're doing something similar at Rady and I think it really, it changes the scientists who are exposed to this.
1: Do you have any advice for young investigators, trainees, <laughs> graduate students, postdocs, how to survive and be successful in this field? Uh, well, neither of my
0: kids is going to science. So. <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps I'm not the right person I've had some grad students and postdocs go on to run academic labs. And, uh, I mean, it's, it's not easy, but I do think that if you start with the passion of trying to do something important. Uh, It carries you through a lot of the frustration. And then if you're lucky and you get things to work and those things get published, I think um, you can make it. I I think that one of the things that I learned, so you uh, may have heard in the introduction that after college and before graduate school, I worked at a science magazine. And, um, it was a really fun experience. It was a great thing to do before I knew what I wanted to do. But one of the things it taught me was the value of being able to communicate to the public. And this is not just because, you know, you don't want to bore the cab driver. It's because, you know, the public is funding what we do and the public depends on us. And if we can't explain to anybody, even to another scientist, frankly, what we're doing and why it's important, <clears throat> then we shouldn't be doing it. So I try to stress to my graduate students that it's not that you want to be a showman and you know go out and make a story out of nothing, but you need to be able to tell a story and you need to be able to communicate why you're doing what you're doing, why it's important, and what will happen if you succeed.
1: It's a really great point, and you know we all review a lot of grants, and they usually want to lay abstract. And I'm always struck how scientists just can't bring themselves to write <laughs> yeah. an abstract; they just sort of repeat the same thing. <laughs> you know, you're supposed to be saying it in a very different way, and yeah. use metaphors or whatnot. So it's yeah. a really important message that we need to convey. Yeah. So, any other questions or comments? No, I, mean, I think
2: the uh, the all the points that you've touched on today. I've been fantastic. So it's been great having you here today. Yeah, thanks for being here. Appreciate it.
1: Thanks for co-hosting to the listening audience. Again, we're happy to read your emails every now and then. We've got one! uh, During a future podcast and discuss your comments and questions, If you send us a note at twipo at solvingkidscancer.org. And I've changed my Twitter handle, so you can follow us on Twitter at kidsoncdoc, K-I-D-S-O-N-C-D-O-C. And find more episodes on the Podbeam app or at www.solvingkidscancer.org under the heading The Latest. Thanks to the team at Solving Kids Cancer, a nonprofit charity dedicated to improving survival through creating novel treatment options for children. Remember, the more we learn, communicate, share ideas, and work together, the faster we'll reach the day when all childhood cancer is preventable or curable. As always, keep up the fight and thanks for listening to This Week in Pediatric Oncology.